0: death. Um, This week we're going to look at the nature of God, according to the Bible, the nature of mankind, and the inevitability of life after death. The following week we're going to look at heaven, and the week after that, hell. So we're going to look into these subjects which um, are very well known on one level. People, you say heaven and hell, people will be able to give you some idea of what is meant by that, but there's a lot of Old wives' tales mixed in, uh, mythology, etc., etc. We'll say, What does the Bible actually teach about heaven? What does the Bible actually teach about hell? I'll tell you, it's not easy. My children often ask me the most I mean, perplexing questions that I can't answer. I mean, I wish I could think of them now. I mean, literally, they just think, I don't know what to say about, about that. Um, oh, there's some, been some hilarious ones. You just think, How did you think of that? You know, but the whole thing of heaven. Is it, is it just, keep, you know, is it this realm but you just keep going and going and you get there in the end? And stuff like that, which you just think, uh, no, it's, it's not that, but what is it? We'll try explaining to a four-year-old what it is if it's not that. It's not easy. So we're going to look at the language that the Bible uses and, and really, I guess, with a, with a view to it, becoming so, the whole concept becoming something which isn't just kind of out there and kind of, you know, uh, ungraspable, but which is concrete and helpful and actually very motivating. On two levels, motivating for the Christian, in terms of having a real solid grasp of what is to come, and a sense of um, excitement and um, hope, that 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 motivates, hope that purifies hope that helps us to come through trials and difficult times and how we respond to that. And also, for those of you that wouldn't describe yourselves as Christians, you're not quite sure where you're at. You may have some interest in Christianity, but you wouldn't say, I'm definitely a Christian. Just to help to introduce you, look, this is what the Bible teaches and this isn't what the Bible teaches. Just so you know, really, what, we're, what, what the Bible is saying and help you to res- make a response to Christ out of that. Now, in the 1980s, a lot of people in the UK would have scoffed at the idea of life after death. And literally, a lot of people would have laughed and said don't be ridiculous, we've grown out of that. Now why is that? That's because in the 80s we were basically a modern society and really what, what reigned in people's minds was the rational um, and, and, and the, the natural sciences in terms of if I can see it or hear it then fine, that's, I'm going to believe it. Anything beyond that was seen as a bit silly and a bit naive. 20 years on, many, many people in the UK now believe in life after death. That's because we're now a postmodern society, and people are very interested in spiritual reality, spiritual experience, and many, many people describe themselves as spiritual. Now what that means can mean all kinds of things, but many people describe themselves now as spiritual. People very close to me have conversations, they say, well look, I'm a spiritual kind of person. I'm not a Christian like you are, Steph, but I am a spiritual kind of person. And another person can say, and it can mean something very different, but that's that's the language that people are using these days. And people tend in our society to increasingly align themselves more with Buddhism, or Eastern mysticism, rather than historical Christianity. They tend to find that more appealing, they tend to find that um, perhaps uh, more credible. And so they go along that way. So reincarnation has kind of replaced, if you like, heaven and hell in terms of a popular understanding of the afterlife, or life after death. Or if not reincarnation, then being caught up in the universal consciousness, whatever that might be. So that's more the idea that it's popular. Um, these days. However, at the same time as this move, this huge shift towards spirituality, it's worth noting something and it's this, there's been a huge increase in lawlessness, increase in violent crime, increase in teenage suicide, increase in divorce, increase in binge drinking, increase in obesity, our prisons are overwhelmingly full. Um, Parts of our inner cities are becoming no-go areas. There's the threat of terrorism, there's the fear of gangs, and our society's role models seem to spend most of their time either taking crack or getting into street fights. And so, for all of our spirituality, we're not actually progressing morally, ethically, as a society, and the politicians are pulling their hair out. And I think, I've been obviously reflecting on the mayoral election last few days, and just thinking that whole thing through, and thinking, wow, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a strongly political person, but I've been just thinking about it and thinking, I, I was genuinely surprised that Boris won. I was just surprised. I'm not saying I didn't, didn't or did not want him to, but I was surprised that he won. And I started to think through, what was it that swung it for him? And I, I think it was his stance on crime, that he spoke a lot about the whole thing of dealing with petty crime. Because for a lot of people, that's becoming the big deal in London. I don't want to go out. I'm afraid to go on the bus. I'm afraid any anyone between the age of 15 or 19 scares me. If they got a hoodie, especially. There's this whole gang culture thing, which and you, and so really, for all of our spirituality, we ha, we're not doing too well morally or ethically. So let's examine historic Christianity and see that can it speak into 21st century life? Can it speak into our situation today? Has this historic religion got something to say into our lives? Today, what does it have to say about people, about God, and about life after death? We're going to start with God. Who is God? This is massive because 50 or so years ago, even people that didn't believe in God, when they said that, they were saying they didn't believe in the Christian God. Their understanding of God was the Christian God. That's all changed now. God can mean whatever you want it to mean. So, what do Christians mean when they say God? Who are they talking about? Well, the God that the Bible reveals, the God that Christians believe in, is eternal, he's without beginning and without end. In fact, he describes himself as the beginning and the end. That means nothing came before him and nothing will come after him. That's one of his titles, the Alpha and the Omega. Now, what is that? Well, in the Greek alphabet, the first letter is Alpha, the, second letter is, the last letter is Omega. It's God saying, I'm the start and I'm the finish. That's the God of the Bible. So he transcends every dimension. He transcends time. So although he's involved in time, he actually transcends it. He's over it. He's not limited by time in the way that we are. He's a God that has created these various dimensions and therefore is over them. He transcends circumstances. He transcends space. He oversees history. So empires that come and go, cultures, fashions, trends, ideas and assumptions. He's over all of it. He's overseeing all of it. And the Bible even says he's working all things together for his grand purpose. Everything is being worked together for a grand purpose that will one day culminate. He's not a God who's taken by surprise. He's never experienced this sense of, oh, I didn't think that was going to happen. He's utterly sovereign. He's completely over it. He stands astride it. Because he's the beginning and the end and not limited by time, he knows how it's going to end. In fact, how it's going to end is how he has ordained it's going to end. His sovereignty is un- unrivaled in that sense. It's never seriously and can never seriously be challenged because he's the creator. Everything else is, has been made by him. He's the source of all things. So he's the only one who's, who's ultimately can be spoken of as creator. Everything else is a creature. From the most glorious angel to the tiniest ant, we're creatures. So this is the God. Of the Bible, he's intimately engaged in everything that goes on in life, and yet is ultimately unaffected by it in the sense that he's unchanged completely. He's unchanging. The word the theologians use is immutable. His character is not affected by the things that go on. So unlike us, the Bible says, bad company corrupts good character. You hang around enough with certain people with certain attitudes and you don't watch it, it will begin to rub off. You experience something, it has an impact. You experience something traumatic, you can find, actually, I don't want to be in that situation again because I've been affected by being in it. God is not like that. Although he sees it, although his heart breaks at the things that go on, he's not tainted by it, his character is not penetrated by it in any way. He's completely immutable. He's the only truly independent being. He lives from himself and he lives to himself. He's not dependent on anyone or anything else. He doesn't look to anyone or anything else as a source of uh, advice, wisdom, strength, life. All these things come from him. He is the ultimate source, the fountain, if you like, of everything. This is the God of the Bible. He's answerable to no one. He's the ultimate reality. Everything flows from him. Everything that we see and everything that we don't see were made by him and are answerable and accountable to him. So I'm trying to present to you the, the God of the Bible who is the centerpiece of all things. Completely transcendent over everything that he's created and yet intimately engaged. He's personal. He sees, he knows, he speaks, he laughs, he weeps, he loves, but not like we do. It's never just sentiment, it's never just superficial emotion, it's true substance and true lives. But the the way the Bible describes him, he's a God who can come close to the brokenhearted and weep with them. He's a God who rejoices over things that go well, sing, sing songs over his people. He's absolutely, I mean, in terms of a person, unlike anything you could imagine, in terms of true personhood and substance, think about the person you most love being around. The person who, to you, most sums up what it is to be full of personality, full of, full of wonderful emotion. People, you know people you describe, describe them as big? You know those kind of people? It's nothing to do with their physical frame, but they're big people. Yeah, I, I know someone like that. He's <laughs> just hilarious, he's just big. He's just the biggest, I'm not going to mention his name because um, he's not in this church, but some of you will know him, I don't want to sort of, you know, embarrass him. But he's just, he's in a, he, one thing that always struck me, what he did once, he's in an ice cream queue. He just all blow it, I'm going to buy ice creams for everyone. And so, which, one do you, which one do you want? He's just light, there's this overflow, there's this largeness about him. Well, that is a reflection of the nature of God. He's big in his personality. He feels like we cannot imagine. Someone once said, the reason why we cannot see the face of God is because we couldn't handle the pain and all the pain on his face if we saw him because if you think about the things he sees this terrible story about Austria these children in in this cellar that's been going on for this past 24 years we're horrified listen, the Lord has been watching that every day for the last 24 years he experiences pain that we cannot imagine and yet in his wisdom and in his sovereignty he has given man free will so generally speaking, his, his way is not to just intervene and just kill the guy. He can if he wants to, but generally he lets us make choices and live by those choices. So he's utterly sovereign over it or able to intervene at any point and yet lets things run very often, but never those things run never ever undermine his ultimate purpose and where the whole thing is going. It's a mystery. This is the God of the Bible. He's omniscient. That means he knows all things all the time. He doesn't just know what we do, he knows why we do it. Okay? Every, everything that happens, he understands and knows because it's all his work and all his creation. He knows it inside out, outside in, upside down, downside up. He knows you. And sometimes we can be in dilemmas. I don't even know myself. Why did I make that decision? He knows you. He knows why you did it. The Bible says, the heart of man is deep waters. Who can understand it? God can. He knows you. He knows how you work. The Bible says he knows you're sitting down and you stand up. Before word's on your tongue, he knows what you're going to say. <laughs> Good job he's not prone to anxiety, Hey, eh? <laughs> Imagine it, you know, always knowing what someone's going to say, you think, oh no, they're going to say that, and they do. <laughs> what? Well, so John Piper, a pastor theologian, said God has a very complex emotional life. Loads of wonderful things happen that he rejoices in, at the same time, you've got these people stuck in this cellar, which he's aware of. I mean, how do you live in that place? I mean, it's, it's just impossible to get your head around. This is the God of the Bible. He's involved in his creation, he upholds it all by his cosmic voice. He knows where the furthest galaxy is because he's there as well as here. And he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. In fact, the Bible says he knows the numbers of hairs on your head. So he's the God of the big and he's the God of the small. He's a God of perfect moral character. So the things that he declares to be right, things like faithfulness, mercy, justice, love, kindness, these things, these things are, 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 he is completely consistent in in his character. So he's not like the corrupt politician that speaks about family values and then gets caught out in adultery. Okay? He's not like that. Everything that he declares to be right and good, his whole being completely backs up. He's utterly consistent. He's got complete integrity. And everything that he declares to be wrong, injustice, unfaithfulness, adultery, bitterness... All these things he himself personally shuns and hates and will not allow near him. This is the God of the Bible. This is who he is. He, is, he has total integrity and consistency of character. So the universe, the galaxies, the stars, the planets of this earth, the creatures... The fish, the birds, the mammals, the people, all of them are the overflow. He created out of need. He didn't create because he was lonely. The Bible describes God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in perfect community, perfectly satisfied. So God did not create out of need. He wasn't bored or lonely. He created out of overflow. So everything that you see is the overflow of his love and the subject of his story, which we call history. Okay? Everything that is, is all about for the grand narrative and the grand scheme that God himself is working out. So he's the source, he's the beginning and the end. He's very great and so he's to be feared and yet he's to be delighted in. He's to be loved and yet he's to be revered. This is how someone described it as the friendship and the fear, it's the way you relate to God. There's the friendship and there's the fear, there's the trembling. Both those things together. So this is God. When Christians speak about God this is who they are talking about. He interacts in history and culture with people and yet he stands astride it because he writes the rules the rules are subject to him that's why Christians believe in miracles because although God has made certain natural laws at any point he can just say I'm going to come in and just do something here and it's going to completely flip the whole natural law on its head no problem he's not subject to them he's over them they're his laws he's able to do that he's allowed to do that he doesn't act by committee or by democracy as if someone should be his advisor or counsellor or director when he makes a decree no one in heaven goes hold on a minute Lord it doesn't happen One of the greatest kings in history, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, was humbled in a serious way by God because of his pride. And in the end, he said this of God. He said, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Well, you know, you can say it, but you won't get an answer. Because you can't hold him to account. Because he's supreme. He's the Lord. He's over everything. And yet, because of his 100% goodness, he's totally trustworthy. That's God. Next question. Who am I? What is a biblical anthropology? What is mankind according to the Bible? It's very important you get this. Very, very important. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? What is it that is looking back at you? What are you? Who are you? Is there any answers to these things? Because a, a lot of the current thought would say, well, you're just, it's genuinely, they would say this, it's random. It's just what happened accidentally and we are the latest in the line of the evolutionary scale. This is where it's at. Um, and there's no meaning or purpose behind it in that sense, it's just it's a chemical thing. It's amazing, there may be no other planet like it in the universe, but it's, it's, it's a random thing ultimately. You can't genuinely say, why am I here, and expect an answer, that's foolish, that's naive, you can't do that. Well, the Bible says something very, very different. It says that we are made, we were created in his image, that there was a particular point in God's creative process where he says, now let us make man in our image. Different from the cattle and the other animals, that us make man, we've got, to, we've got to be clear on this, I, we went to, had a wonderful day out at London Zoo a few weeks ago with the family, fantastic, and we saw this show where, where parrots and lemurs and stuff and we had a chance to go and s- s- stroke the lemur afterwards and speak to the lemur handler. Now lemurs are, are different because they have fingernails that have claws and they look different. And So this zoo zookeeper's got the lemur there and kids are stroking it and she begins to teach my children evolution, she begins to educate them in evolution. She says, this is your cousin. It's interesting. I didn't realize. I didn't realize that. I th- didn't know she knew my family. I said, amazing. But she says, Your cousin, she began to explain. And Daisy, and then um, Daisy said, oh, I haven't got a towel. And she said, Well, no, that's because you did have a towel. But now you don't anymore. And I just thought, I need to just have a word here. I said, I said, Excuse me. I said, We don't believe this stuff. She said, Well, it's scientific fact. I said, It's not. It's a theory. And then it went a little bit awkward, as you can imagine. But we carried on stroking the Lima. <laughs> Because I thought I just came to stroke the lemur. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't need this family tree thing going on. I don't believe it. I just don't believe. It. I don't believe it's true. I'm not convinced. I'm. I'm not. I think it's great that it's got fingernails, but I need more than that. I need more than that to demonstrate that this is Daisy's cousin. So it was an interesting conversation. But you see, this is this is what people are taking on, and I just feel I feel well. And the woman was talking about this little rapport she has with this animal and, you know, who's the boss? And I'm thinking, man, alive. Who's the boss? What, What does the Bible say? God created man and said, rule over creation. Subdue it, but treat it well. Govern on my behalf. We're to be God's co-regents, his representative on earth. We were made in his image to reflect his glory and to represent him on the earth and to represent his nature and the way he rules in all his goodness and grace and mercy and yet in his authority, we are to rule on earth and we're to subdue and we're to treat things well, but we're to be in charge. We're not to have discussions with lemurs about who's the boss. (laughs) We're the boss. That's... But there's, there's this clash of worldviews, there's this clash, and you can't just, or oh, we'll have a bit of this and a bit of that, because ultimately they're going in different directions, you've got to be clear, what, what are we clear on here? We're the crowning glory of God's creation, that means we have inherent dignity, inherent worth, inherent value, we are the crowning glory of God's creation. I don't... I, on one level, whatever you've been through, however people have treated you, whatever terrible things have happened, listen, I want you to to know this, you are not an accident. You were created by God. You are dearly loved by Him. You are to reflect His glory on the earth. He loves you. You're not an accident. We were made for eternity. In fact, Ecclesiastes, which is an obscure book in the Bible, wisdom literature, says this, He has put eternity in our hearts. He has put eternity in our hearts. Now you see this at funerals. You see it when someone dies, and yet we, we knew they were going to die, even if it wasn't tragic or early, but we knew they were going to die, but they die, and there's this sense of loss, this sense of this isn't right, we're weeping and crying, and we, we, we become very illogical around death. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? We know we're going to die. We know it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's the only thing that's true of everyone, and yet when it happens, we fall apart. Something in us says no. This isn't what it's made for. I want to tell you today, according to the Bible, death is unnatural. We were not made to die. In fact, fact, if you look at the way we live, it it explains it. it, Very many of us us have a fear of death. In fact, the Bible describes it as a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. You see it in the fear of aging. You know, the the wrinkle creams. (laughs) Did you hear about about the wrinkle cream um, scientific thing? The the scientists thought, right, these anti-wrinkle creams, we're going to check whether they actually work or not. And they did these huge tests. Anyway, it turns out one of them does turns out one of them actually works. It's the Boots one. It's not even Estee Lauder on the... It's Boots! And so they published their results and you can imagine the next day in Boots, it was crazy! It was like, you know, like when IKEA opened in Edmonton and someone got stabbed. Did you hear about that? It was crazy! It did, it's true! It's true because of the settees on deal. I mean, it was the same thing! I've got to have the city. Otherwise, you know, life's not worth living. You know, and it's the same thing. I've got to get rid of these wrinkles. What is that? What's going on? Let's just stop. Let's get psychological. What's going on there? Why are you? What is this? I've got to make myself look younger. What are you afraid of? Because it's like you're getting older. Get over it. We all are. It's okay. But it's something, it's this fear of death because it kind of, it's like, uh, what? we weren't made to die. Look at the way we fight against life-threatening diseases with vigor and energy, as we should. I'm not not condemning any of these things. Especially, I mean, the fight against cancer and other diseases is commendable. But why? Why do we give so much energy to it? Because we know that death is wrong. Unnatural. It's the final enemy, the Bible says. We are eternal people. Not only, not only are we eternal beings, we're eternal people. So, when God creates the immortal soul in the, in the womb of a mother as it's, as it's being developed in the womb, that, that soul, that person will be conscious forever, the Bible teaches. You won't be, when you die, sucked up into some kind of universal consciousness. When God creates a soul, an immortal soul, that soul, that person, you, 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 you will be conscious forever, somewhere or the other, according to the Bible. We are morally accountable. Hebrews 9.27 says this, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. It's not that you won't come back as a turtle if you did really badly or as, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger if you did really well, or whatever. That's not how it works. (laughs) It's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Now some people think this is such an archaic view, judgment. How can you be saying this? Well, actually it makes perfect sense because our natural reality reflects spiritual reality. If you do certain things, you break certain laws or whatever, you go to court, you face judgement, there's an accountability in place to keep order. It's a reflection of God's order because God has a law, moral law. His first commandment is love me with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength. His second command, love your neighbour as you love yourself. If you don't do that, you are breaking his law and guess what we all done So we're lawbreakers. You may be an upright citizen, you may never have had a parking ticket, you may not shoplift, but in God's eyes, we are lawbreakers. We don't do it. The Bible says there's no one good, no one who does good, no one who seeks after God, no one understands anymore. Everyone's too busy doing their own thing. We're morally accountable, judgment is coming. We're made for glory, but we don't live up to it. We fall short of it. Death came through sin. That's why death's in the world. Listen to what happened. God says to Adam, "From any tree you may eat, but not from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate of it. What does God say to Adam as a result? Genesis three nineteen. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. Death's coming now. Just like God said. Not only this we're dull, but the things of the Spirit now. Because we've fallen in Adam, we're not what we were, we're dull. We don't get God. When we try and find God, we're kind of like misty, looking around. Oh, I believe in some. You hear people say, I believe in some kind of being. I, I think something's out there. There's some greater thing, but there's no clarity. Why? Because our spiritual faculty has been dulled. Here's what it says in Ecclesiastes. He's put eternity in their hearts, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning and the end. We've got lots of speculation, lots of ideas, but we're dull to what God has done. We're depraved. We're ruined. We're under his wrath. The Bible says we are under his righteous wrath. Jesus said, whoever has the Son, meaning himself, has everlasting life. Whoever does not have the Son, does not have life, but is under the wrath of God. We need to come to terms with these things, this is what the Bible is teaching. That God is deeply offended by our sinfulness, deeply offended by the way we break his laws, deeply offended by our bragging that he doesn't exist or we know best. It, 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 It doesn't affect his character, as I said earlier, but it affects him, it touches his heart, he thinks no. I made you to know me. I made you to centre around me. So we're good, but we're bad. <laughs> Have you ever felt like a walking contradiction? I do. These intentions, these good intentions. I get inspired. You ever heard that? I get inspired. <laughs> then I get hungry. My priorities change. You, know? you ever heard that? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to really pray now. Two minutes in. Well, you know, it's good to sleep as well. It's good to sleep. <laughs> My body needs sleep as well. And you know, other things, I'm going to help that person. Then they become annoying. Yeah, I don't want to help him anymore. <laughs> I didn't like the way you said that. You say, oh! There's these contradictions. We're, we're walking contradictions. There's this good, we're made in God's image to love him, but we're bad, we're sinners. That's what we are. We're good, but we're bad. We're rebels more than we are victims. There's this thing in us. We just want to do our own thing. So we're like grand mansions that are bit now derelict and ruined. You, if you look closer, you can see the glory. You can see what was supposed to be, but it's ruined. It's ruined not what it was. is ivy and moss and it's crumbling here and crumbling. And think, man, it's, I can see what it was. But it's not that anymore. That's the way the Bible describes us. So why is life after death? Therefore, is life after death. Therefore, having brought God and us, why is it inevitable? Because God, being the righteous judge, is not satisfied to just let us do whatever we want and not hold us to account. Can you imagine an earthly judge doing that? Someone who's just broken loads of laws and the judge just says, oh, don't worry about it. How much more will God hold us to account? And so he determines to make a date when we will all be held to account. It's commonly known as Judgment Day. We're going to look at Judgment Day in detail over the next couple of weeks as we look at heaven and as we look at hell. We will look at that. But when we die, the Bible says we'll all stand before God. I'm going to read you a passage from Revelation in a minute which describes what will happen on Judgment Day. And what it does is it brings us face-to-face with the reality that maybe we often don't even think about. Maybe if you, even if you're a Christian, you don't think about this much. So concerned with how to glorify God day-to-day in the here and now. We, don't, we forget we forget what's, what's going to be on the last day. Or maybe if you're not, you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian and you just think, I don't know, what, what's going to happen? What does the Bible say? Well, here's what the Bible says. This is strong, I'm going to warn you. i am not doled it down or diluted it. This is, this is, we believe that the Bible is God's revealed word and so we don't make apology for it or kind of tuck a few things away here or there. This is what it says. It's the guy called John, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's close to death at this stage. He's on the Isle of Patmos in exile for being a Christian. He's the only one of the original 12 that wasn't murdered, martyred for his faith, but he got sent onto the Isle of Patmos as a slave, as an exile. Um, and so he's old at this stage. He's an old guy, 80 or so years of age, and he has this vision of what is to come. He has this vision of uh, the last days and judgment and... And it's a very amazing thing. It's called the book of Revelation. You've probably heard about it in the Bible. It's where we hear about things like 666 666 and these other things. It's all in the book of Revelation. Well, listen to what he says. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wait, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he who sat on the throne said behold I am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and faithful and ultimately the question we must ask ourselves is this not how does this make me feel when I hear it but is it true because there are many things in life that affront our feelings and we think "Oh." wasn't ready for that. And I don't know about you, but very often in different realms we can be easily offended. You think, oh, hold on a minute. But that's not ultimately the issue. The ultimate the issue is this. Are these words trustworthy and true? What is eternity? Are we ready for eternity? Are we ready to face the great white throne? What is our confidence on that day? On our day, what will be our confidence? When we stand before Jesus, as we all will, the dead, the great and the small, when we stand before Him and we have to give an account for our lives, what is ultimately going to be our confidence? We need to know. We need to be able to answer these questions. What is your confidence before Him for eternity? Are you confident? Because self confidence in that moment, I'm pretty sure, will drain away. I'm pretty sure any sense of things we've done or achieved will suddenly become pretty low down on the list as we're face to face with this one from whose face earth and sky flee. He's so holy. He's so holy. We, we struggle to come to terms with this holiness. What does it mean? Well, it kind of means that he's so different that even to look upon him, you think, this is unlike anything I've ever imagined. This is unlike anything I've got any framework for. In fact, the Bible describes certain creatures called seraphs in the Bible. It means flaming ones. And they're likened to a flaming fire, but kind of these unusual creatures. They're, they're, they're these um, angelic creatures, if you like. And they're very holy and very, you know, you think, man, these things are... But when they... And they surround the throne, and they have six wings. And with two of their wings, they cover their eyes. Because even for them to look upon the Lord is so holy. They can't, it's too much. It's too much. And so, just to really conclude today, where do we find ourselves? and what is, what is, what, How can we respond to this? We're faced with a God who is sovereign. A God who is the creator, a God who is not uh, the result of our own machinations and working out, this is what I want my God to be like. That is idolatry. You just created your own God. If you just take the bits out you like and keep the bits, take the bits out you don't like, keep the bits in you like, you're just creating your own God. We're talking about the God who has revealed himself, he is eternal. He's Everything I described earlier, we have this God. And then we have us, made in his image, loved, precious, unique, and yet fallen. And morally, Just corrupt and yet accountable. And we have this day coming, the day of judgment, and heaven and hell, the realities of heaven and hell that we will look at in detail over the next two weeks. How do we respond to this reality? Because it's a strange reality, isn't it? We're not used to it. It's strange for a number of reasons. Number one, we're born alienated from God. So when we hear about these things, it just seems alien. You think, it doesn't seem tied in with normal life. I've come here today. It just seems so different from just day-to-day stuff. It seems alien because we're alienated from God. Secondly, we're constantly told that life's all about us, aren't we? Nescafe's great, great slogan. It's all about you. It's like it's not. It isn't. And I, constantly we're being bombarded. You need this is, because you're worth it. It's all about you. And it's like you, you, you. And we become just consumers, and we think, oh, it's all about me. But it isn't. It's all about him. It's all about Him. The Bible says all things were made by Him and for Him. It's for His glory. You might think, why am I here? You're here for Him. You're here for Him, for His pleasure, for His glory. Now that's alien, that's unusual. That's what the Bible teaches. And the third reason why it's kind of weird is that it raises the stakes and it introduces a completely different realm and a completely different reality. It might, maybe for some of you today, it's a bit like Neo when he first, he takes the pill and he wakes up on this spaceship and he thinks, what the heck is this? And it's says, oh, by the way, this is reality. He thinks, I didn't think this was, I thought the other thing was written. And they're saying, well, actually, it's a bit of a deception. Well, look, this is reality. Eternal realities. And I just want to urge you today, don't discard it, don't dismiss it. I can't make decisions for you I can't you know only you are accountable for your own soul and your own response to God. It's so important that we take these things to heart and we let ourselves process them and, and we're able to actually come to a point where we say I know where I'm going I know where I'm going I know that when I stand before the great white throne I'll be confident that God will receive me not because I'm good not because I've done well, not because I went to church, not because I read my Bible, not because I said my prayers, but because I threw myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that God, in his great holiness and yet his great love, made a way for us to get right with him. He didn't just stand back and say, you're in trouble. He said, I'm going I'm to come in. I'm going to come, he sent his only son, to live and die for us and be raised again for us, so that as we cling to Jesus... We can know our sins forgiven and we can know we're right with God. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, let me urge you, please, please do it. If you've never thrown yourself on Jesus for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness, please do it. Do not rest on your own good works, your own righteousness. When you face that throne, it will fall away. You'll think, what was I doing? Prepare yourself for that day. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of Your greatness, of Your sovereignty, of Your timelessness, of Your eternal glory. Lord, all these elements of You that we looked at today leaves us kind of breathless. We think, "Wow, what a God!" And that You should take regard for us, and You should want to bring us into Your bosom and love us, and that You should want to make us Your children. And that you should want to receive us and forgive us and reconcile us to you. And that you would go to the length, Father, of giving your one and only Son to bring us back to you. We say, what love. What love. That you, Lord, you could have just destroyed us in a moment, Lord God. Even in our rebellion, you should have just left us to it in many ways. But even when we kicked against you, you gave your only Son to die on a cross for our sins. What an awesome saviour you are. What an amazing God you are. Lord, we love you today. And Lord, our offerings of love just seem a bit pathetic and a bit puny, but Lord, they are sincere. They are sincere. We thank you for reconciling us to you, not to religion, not to philosophy, but to a relationship with you. And thank you for giving us your spirit to come and live inside of us, Lord, so we can have a relationship with you. Thank you for making us born again, Lord. We're not what we were. Hallelujah. You've made us brand new people. And Lord, we just say that we love you today. And I pray for all those here, Father, that maybe just... That don't, don't, don't know you Lord in that way they don't, they've not been reconciled to you I pray have mercy open the eyes of their hearts and draw them to you I pray in Jesus name in Jesus name Amen Amen if the band would like to come back we're going to trust express our trust and love mm-hmm. for Jesus some more in song and uh, just delight in him You may notice that sometimes people close their eyes on this thing. It just helps us to concentrate. Sometimes we lift our hands.